like I said, I'm going to continue on really with talking about prosperity, with his, which is what my mom really touched on over uh, on Sunday. And really, it's kind of a common theme inside of our church. And now I think sometimes when we hear the word prosperity, we can feel like I'm going to stand up here and talk about money for the next 31 minutes. But I'll tell you, prosperity and the scripture that we're going to go off of tonight is in 3 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things, and be in health, just as your soul prospers. And so as we talk about prosperity or prospering, I believe that what God is talking about is that we would live in an overabundance in every area of our life. That we would have an abundance of peace and an abundance of happiness. That we would have an abundance of good times. That we would have abundant health in our physical bodies. That, that God would, uh, would love it that we would prosper not just in our finances, although God is very specific in that he tells us multiple times in the Bible that a part of the promise of God is to prosper financially. But prosperity is really every area of our life that God would have it, that we would live without the limits that society or culture tries to place upon us. Because we all live with those things. We all live with limits and labels, and those things try to keep us stuck or shackled to this natural world. But how many of you know Jesus was not limited by anything? That when he needed wine, he made wine. When he needed money, he made money. When he needed healing, he made healing. When he needed to walk on water, he walked on water. Jesus prospered in every area of his life. And what we're going to talk about tonight in 3 John 2 is, um, I heard it said one time that the secret to prospering in all areas and in health is to make sure that our soul prospers. That's what the scripture says. Beloved, I would pray that you would prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So what John is telling us here is there's a direct correlation between the outside prospering and being healthy on the outside as they're in on the inside. And in our culture, I, I, I have grown to become aware that I think that in our culture, we would say that we'll prosper even at the expense of our soul. That people lack physical health because they lack in their soul health. Right? We see that people talking about the grind, and I don't know if you ever feel that pressure. I don't know if you follow Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but if you do, he makes you feel bad all the time because somehow he goes to bed at 2 a.m. and wakes up at 4.45 to go to the gym. I don't know how he does it. He's superhuman. But we live on this place of the grind. And so often what happens is, is that people allow their soul health to deteriorate and wonder why things in their lives begin to fall apart. And I've realized that the, the majority of prosperity in our culture is what I would call zero-sum prosperity. And what I mean by this is that for everything that you gain, you lose something in response to the gain in a particular area. You see that so often, if we use money as an example in the world, you see and you hear people talk about, about money and maybe they, you know, they live in a quest in order to make as much money as possible and you find out, you, know, you always hear it on people's deathbeds, is they're not wishing that they made more money. They're not wishing that they bought better stocks, but typically people at the end of their life wish they would trade anything in order to have better relationships. We see that it's a zero-sum game. That yes, we have increased financially, 
but it came at the expense of maybe our relationships, maybe our physical health. The American Medical Association, they just recently came out, and they now consider stress to be the number one killer. They've linked 60%, 60%, catch this, 60%, over half of the illnesses in North America are directly linked to or are the result of stress. And so we realize from this that God knows something. When he tells us that we cannot desire or we cannot experience prosperity outside of our soul prospering, how many of you know God knows something? That sometimes man in our desire to try to control things and make things happen outside of God's kingdom, we can try to take things and morph them and we can try to push the limits of our humanity. But I've realized something that when we follow the scriptures and we follow what God has to say, the Bible tells it, says it like this, that when we prosper with God, that we'll experience prosperity without the toil, without the sorrow. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of increase I'm looking for. I don't want to increase financially at the expense of relationship with my wife and daughter. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like it's a good plan to me. But I know that God is telling me in 3 John 2 that I can prosper in all things. I can be healthy. I don't have to be one of those 60% of the people who experience the physical results of stress. But I can live healthy, strong, prosperous, with good relationships, in a peaceful environment with joy and happiness and love and contentment. As long as I put an emphasis or a priority on my soul prospering. Now here's the reality, is that this is a legitimate struggle. Okay, we, it preaches so well that, you know, we just got to let our soul prosper, Right? But in the modern day, the 24 hours of our day, 365 days of our life, we come at problems and situations and circumstances that want to or try to deteriorate at our soul prosperity, right? The stress, the anxiety, the nervousness, the worries, the relationship problems and the job things and the money stuff and the car stuff and the house sink that's leaking and the bathroom and the, right? The list goes on and on. Today I realized that my sink was leaking at my house. Thank God I fixed it, but it was leaking. Yeah, I'm so plumber handy. I used a wrench and tightened the nut thing. The thing, what's the thing called? It's called a, I think a nut. I believe it's a nut. Okay. And this is the thing, is that we fight things and face things every day that want to challenge our souls, our, our soul prosperity. And I think that this is because the world is so good at giving names to things. You ever notice that, that when somebody labels something that you have, it seems to make that thing so much worse? You ever notice that, that we, and we're so quick in our culture to label things or to give things a name, you know, I said it the other time, one of the last times that I was preaching is that we're the only species in humanity that will label someone for a lifetime something that they did in a moment. Right? We're so quick to give labels and add names and we're so quick to call things out and see things and notice things that we're constantly bombarded by a system that would make us feel as though we have to worry or try to take control of tomorrow tomorrow. 
if we're going to experience success in tomorrow. And because of that, we're constantly worried and trying to make things work and figure things out and trying to connive and concoct and plan and establish. And it's not long before we all feel mentally exhausted, overcome by the physical negativity of stress in our body. But here's the good news. The good news is that this is a fight that we were born to win. That we have control over our soul. That Jesus has given us the power. That God is not intimidated by your situation. God is not troubled by what troubles you. He's not worried about what makes you worried. He is not nervous about what the doctor said or what the banker said. He's not nervous about the fight that you just had with your spouse. Or that your kid didn't come home last night. God is not in heaven calling Jesus having emergency meetings because they're so surprised at the negative situation that just happened to you. God is not taken off guard by anything in our life. In fact, God goes to the other extreme where he says that he'll turn every negative situation around for our good. He's so confident in his ability that he would make a promise about your problem while you're still in the middle of it. Because he's so confident in his ability to get the job done. I think that's why the Bible says that Jesus was given the name that's above every name. Because we love names, right? And some names in our culture are big. Like if you go to the doctor and you hear the word cancer, or to your banker and you hear the word bankruptcy, these are big names in our culture. And with them, they carry so much weight and intensity. But the scripture clearly tells us that Jesus was given the name above every name. It says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That it doesn't matter how big the world says your problem is. Jesus has the authority and the dominion to cause that situation to turn around in our life for good. But you see, we got to trust. That's the thing. It's like in my life. Um, when Danielle and I were getting ready to get engaged, I'll give you a little glimpse into my engagement story. My engagement story rocked, okay? And mostly because my wife had no clue, okay? So my wife and I dated for three and a half years. And at about the, probably the three-year point, my Danielle got a little, you know, she kind of gave me the thing, the spiel, <laughs> right? Like either we're going to get married or, you know, I'm going to go find somebody else who would like to marry me, okay? Because I was pretty content dating, you know? I mean, I felt like it's pretty easy to be single. Uh, I was really good at being selfish. And so the idea of having to put somebody else in front of me seemed a little bit unnerving, challenging. And so finally, you know, it was, you know, I went to the Lord and I prayed and I knew that Danielle was the person for me and Thank God I married her. I was telling LCSM that if there's such a thing as a soulmate, my wife is my soulmate, right? She's amazing. She made me cry. She's so good, and we're so good together. But what makes my story so good is I, I knew that I was going to propose to her um, at about the three-year point, but didn't end up proposing to her until about three and a half years. And for really for six months, I laid it on that we're probably like two years away from getting engaged, okay? And to the point where we legitimately would fight. We'd have fights 
about the fact that I need to get my act together, I need to grow up, and I need to ask her to marry me. Or ask her to marry me. Yeah, that's right. So much so that the night before I was going to ask her to marry me, we had a huge blowout. Okay? And I laid it on thick. Now, I knew that I was going to propose to her literally within hours. Okay? But I'm telling her, you know what? Like, I guess we could start to pray about getting married. Right? I think that, you know, maybe if we plan for like a couple of years from now, it's going to be okay. And we, we got into a blowout. I'm pretty sure we like didn't even say goodnight. We just, I think she kicked me out of her apartment at that point. She's like, you need to go home and think about this. And I can remember the next day, the next day, how, this is how cool God is and why, why we have to learn the, the, the discipline of controlling our thoughts and giving our worries over to God. The next morning, she has, so she has no idea. She's thinking we're going to get married in 2020 or something. Okay. The next morning she is in church and she's spending time with the Lord and she's worshiping. And if you know my wife's story, she has an amazing relationship with the Lord. And it really, it's like my aunt's story about through meditation. And she's just seen God do amazing things. And she, she doesn't worship and she's meditating on the goodness of the Lord. And she just basically gives the worry to God. And she says like, God, like, I'm not worried about it. Like, I believe this is the person I'm supposed to marry. And so I just give this care over to you, right? Little does she know that she's literally like giving the worry and the care over to God like three hours before she's about to get engaged. And then I like, get this amazing thing where she loves Easter baskets. And it's like this whole thing that she does. Her family did it. She gets these Easter baskets and it was super common for us. And I put the ring inside of an Easter egg and so she's like slowly opening these Easter eggs and she pops up and she's like, boom, and it was this nice ring. And I was like, I got on my knee and I was like, honey, I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> I didn't say that actually. I had this whole spiel, but none of it comes out, right? You're kind of just like, ah, uh, um, uh, will I marry you? Will you marry, will you marry me? That's, I think that's what my speech was. And so this is the thing, right, is that so many of us, we carry around these worries, these nerves, these negative emotions, right? Why? Because we're trying to solve issues that are somehow being determined somewhere in our future. That we're trying to solve tomorrow's problems in today. We're trying to look at the impossibilities of what God is going to ask us to do in our future, we're trying to look at the promises of prosperity. We're trying to look at finding our spouse or buying our house or all the different things that we want to do inside of our future. Having a child. My wife and I have an amazing story, testimony about having our daughter and, you know, the same idea of things not going the way you thought they were supposed to go and then you get so worried and stressed out and instead about realizing that prosperity, that God's got everything under control. And then you get that bad doctor's report. Can you get up there? <laughs> and then you and your wife start fighting. I think that's enough boxes. What do you think? And then you realize, <laughs> you realize it's not long before your whole life is spent trying to manage your pain. Yeah. 
Your whole life is trying to just make sure that you don't drop all the things that you're stressed out about. Your life is consumed by issues and troubles and problems. Trying to control things that you can't control. Trying to predict things that you can't predict. And yet we waste our whole lives. And it's very easy for everything to come crashing down. And so I want to talk about this concept because I think that each and every one of us face falling boxes in our lives all the time. Some people call them panic attacks. People call them anxiety. People call them chronic disorders, chronic pain, call them midlife crises. We call them all different things, depression. Right? We give them a lot of names, but in the end of the day, it's all the same thing. It's that we become masters at carrying around our worries and our fears. And I wanted to talk about this because I think that our life, we talked about this a little while ago, really for the summer in the pursuit of happiness, is, is that I believe that our life is meant to be enjoyed. I don't think that our life is meant to try to do our very best to carry around our stress long enough and try not to crash and burn or burn out. I don't want to live that way. I want to live to a place where I live every day, I'm present, and I can enjoy the moment that I'm in rather than worrying about the moments that are to come. But so often that's the way that we live, and that's why I believe that in 1 Peter 5, I think that Jesus gives us the antidote, the cure to chronic worrying. He says this in verse 6. Therefore, humble, your, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. This is where I want to focus in verse 7. He says this. I love this scripture. I quote it potentially more than any other scripture. And mostly I quote it to myself. <laughs> and mostly at night when I can't sleep. He says this, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Verse 8, it says this, be sober, be, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so I want to talk about this for the last 11 minutes that I have, is that what does it look like to cast our cares on the Lord? Because that's really what these boxes represent. These boxes represent cares. You'll notice that some of those boxes were labeled my wife, and some of them were labeled my child, and some of these boxes in my life are some of you. <laughs> not mentioning any names. And not necessarily things that I would want to wish away things that I gladly carry. But how many of you know there's a difference in carrying someone or walking with someone and worrying about them? How many of you know there's a difference in how that feels? And I believe that that's what God is talking about is that he wants us to begin to walk with him rather than worrying about our future. Because it feels significantly different for us when we do those things. And so I'm going to look at this scripture really quickly because I believe that it gives us the answer. The first thing that I want to focus on is how he says, cast your cares upon him. 
Here's what I realized. That word cast. How many of you know that the word cast is a very active word? How many of you have fished before? A lot of you. Most all of you probably. I mean, we live right near the water. So hopefully all of you have fished at least once. And you know that casting, when you cast, what's it called? A lure? I have fished. It was a long time ago, but I have fished. You cast. How many of you that's an active thing? It's intentional. You don't accidentally cast. But it's an action that I willfully and intentionally do. And I wrote this down, that if we want to change something, we need to change it. Can I say that again? If we want to change something, we have to change it. Right? You, you catch it when I'm laying down here? Is that so often what can happen is there's things in our lives that we so desperately want to change. But I think that we can feel as though the situation has the power over us rather than us over the situation. Let me give you an example. It's like when you lay in bed at night and you're worrying about the things, the stuff, the problems. How many of you know that you have the power over those thoughts? The thoughts don't have the power over you. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? That if I want to change something, the responsibility to change that in my life doesn't fall to anyone, I mean, I would love it if other people, if it was Sandy's fault, or if it was Amy's fault, or Danielle's fault, or Lola's fault. I really don't care. I wish it could be someone else's issue other than mine that I can't sleep at night. I think that that's because a lot of us came to God with the wrong idea of how God works. That I think that we've, we kind of accepted Jesus with this. You know, if you accept Jesus, he's like a magic fix-all prosperity pill. That if you just say the sinner's prayer and once you say amen, God bless you, your life is going to be easy. How many of you have experienced that? How many of you experienced the total opposite? <laughs> right? But I've realized something is that so often we want God to take things away. You know, God, come and take this and take that and do this and do that. But I realized something that God has already done all the taking, all the doing that he's going to do. How many of you know where God is? He's seated in heaven. How many know where Jesus is? He's seated in heaven. <laughs> He's not stressing, he's not worrying, he's not wondering. He's seated, which is a position of rest. It's a position of strength, of confidence, and a position of rest. Because he's already done everything he's going to do. He's already won every victory he's going to win past, present, and future. He's already won the very beginning to the very end in your life everything that you would need from him to do. Every problem that you're facing today, God already has the solution. He's actually already living in the version of you 
that has won the victory right now as much as he's living with you in the moment that you're in the middle of your problem. This is why the Holy Spirit, he's called the helper and not the doer. I wish he was the doer, don't you? I wish he was the guy who went and did all the things. It would be like if with me and Sandy in our relationship. We have a great relationship together. And so actually maybe Sandy is a bad example for this. But if I called Sandy up and I said, hey, Sandy, would you help me build a deck? And when Sandy comes to my house, I'm sitting on my couch eating ice cream. Maybe not Sandy. Maybe one of you. You'd say to me, hey, man, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to do all the work. I will help you do, but unless you do as much as I do, I will be going home. <laughs> right? Right? And this is the thing about the Holy Spirit is, is that the Holy Spirit will come alongside you and empower you to do and help you to do whatever it is that you desire to do. You know, the Holy Spirit will empower you to do nothing. The Holy Spirit will empower you to worry. He will come alongside you and do and help you do whatever it is that you want to do. Because he's the helper, he is not the doer. But how many of you know when we decide and we make a decision that we're no longer going to live under the stress we're no longer going to live under the worry. We're no longer going to live under the anxiety. We're no longer going to live under the pressure. We're no longer going to live under the problem. That when we decide to do that with God, the Holy Spirit will come alongside of us and he will anoint us and give us the power and the grace to walk free from whatever problem that we may be facing. Number two, I have to go quick because I'm out of time. Number two says he cares for us. I think that understanding the nature of God is the greatest revelation. I believe that the whole Bible was given to us as a message, as a letter to help us understand the nature of who our Father is. I think that we've made religions, we've made denominations, we've done all of those things, but the Bible is simply a letter to help us understand how good our dad is. We see the contradiction of two men in the scripture if we look at the story of king david and we look at the story of the apostle peter in just a moment of the apostle peter's life because he ends up doing amazing things but we understand that they both encounter a difficult situation king david we know he has this moment with goliath and the apostle peter we know we we are told of the story where he gets into a storm it's the moment when jesus calls him out into the water and so both, we read about them, they both are encountering a difficult situation. Now, if you've read these stories, you'll know two things about these stories. Number one, they were both impossible. And number two, they ended completely different. King David killed Goliath, but Peter sank in the storm. And I believe that their answers to why their stories were so different are when we focus on their understanding of the nature of God and how understanding the nature of God will change the outcome of the situations that we face ourselves in. Let me dig in for one second. 
We know that when King David has the opportunity and he gets with Saul, and when he's having this discussion with Saul, King Saul at the time, David is telling him, Saul, I want to, or he says, Saul, King Saul, I want to be the one to go and fight Goliath. And we know the story, for those of you who've read it, King Saul gets busy. First he tells him no. Then when David wouldn't take no for an answer, King Saul tries to put his armor on him because David is small. We know that that's not the answer. And David tells him, hey man, it's okay. I know what I'm going to do. King Saul quickly interjects and says, how do you know what you're going to do? Who has ever faced Goliath? And the scripture says that David remembered what God did with the lion and the bear. Yeah. That he said, if God would deliver me from the lion and if he would deliver me from the bear, he will surely deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. We know that David swiftly runs into battle. He doesn't walk. He runs into battle because of the demonstration of confidence in the nature of God. That the same God who delivered him before would deliver him again. And we know the outcome of the story. David throws the stone knocks Goliath down, and then cuts his head off. Sorry, he does. She'd be like, he cuts his head off? With his own sword. Peter also runs into battle. We know the story, Peter and the disciples, they leave, Jesus preaches an amazing message, and they go off, and Jesus stays back to pray, which is a very common theme in Jesus' life. At this point, they're gone. They're in the middle of the water. And Jesus can't find a boat to ride, I'm assuming. That's why he walks in the water. But how many of you know Jesus does not live under labels or limits? Jesus couldn't find a boat. And so he simply walked on the word. He walked on the promise, the principle. That means I'm supposed to be done. <laughs> so Peter calls they see him and they call out, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not a ghost, it's me. And Peter says these amazing words, which is a demonstration of the faith that he has in God. If it's you, call me. He says, bid me to come. And Jesus simply says, come. So Peter steps out of the boat and does the impossible. Just like David does when he throws the stone, just like Daniel does when he shuts the mouth of the lions, he does the impossible. He starts walking on the water. But how many of you know the story ends very differently? And that it's not long before the Apostle Peter starts to sink. It's not long before his attention doesn't go to what King David's did, all the situations that God had brought him through in his past. It doesn't go through all the miracles, it doesn't go through all the signs, all the other impossible things that Jesus does. It says that Peter's attention gets on the wind and the waves. And what happens is that he starts to sink. That instead of focusing on the situation, we must remember the last situation that God helped us get through. Can I tell you, so often the key to success in your current issue, you received in the victory of your last battle. That the very thing that you need right now is the memory of the very thing that God did yesterday. Because here's the deal. We all are living in things right now. We all have things. We all are experiencing things that we simply don't deserve. That our life and our breath and the very fact that we're able to get here with clothes on our back is a testimony to us of the goodness of God. 
that God has never let us down. He's never failed us. And if he hasn't done it then, why would he do it now? Number three, we must be, the Bible says, sober, and we must be vigilant. The easiest way to deal with negative thoughts and emotions, and I'm done with this, is to do the opposite. You will never overcome if you simply just respond to situations. I thought about it like this. It's like a boxer analogy. I don't box. I've never boxed. Thank God. That's why I look so good. (laughs) That was serious. Why'd you laugh? That's weird. Is I've watched boxing movies before. Okay? Quite a few, actually. I live vicariously through Rocky and other gentlemen like that. But I've learned a kind of a story, a kind of a general theme in watching these movies is, is there's this general theme that you should never fight when you feel like you're out of control. That if you seem to angrily respond to what your opponent has done, it's this indication, whether conscious or subconscious, that your opponent has got to you. That when you start to make those crazy swings or you start to favor a certain area where you notice you've been wounded, how many of you know that your opponent begins to notice that there's a weakness that's present? I think this is why John tells us that we're to be vigilant always. Because the enemy, our thoughts, our emotions, the systems, the cultures is always looking for ways in order to find our weakness in order to stop us from accomplishing what God has to stop us, has asked us to do. When we respond to the pain, it's the automatic response of our opponent to begin to attack our weakness. That when we get that bill in the mail and you open it up and you see the number has like an extra zero and you're like, I don't know. Some of you probably, if you're like me, you have moments where you're like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> but how many of you know that when I expose that, the enemy takes note? You know what I've noticed something? Like, they talk about this. I just taught a class recently. I think it was an LCSM. I honestly don't even know where it was at this point. I think it was LCSM. Maybe it wasn't. We're talking about ego and how to deal with ego. We're talking about my dad the, the teaching the creature. He did the big dog. He did all those guys. We're talking about that teaching and about how in order to defeat something, the easiest way for us to defeat something is to starve that thing. You know what I've realized is that the less attention that I give to something, the less that thing bothers me. You ever notice that? That if you just start, you may be freaking out on the inside, but if you just start responding positively to that situation, it's not long before that situation actually stops bothering you. That in fact, it seems like the power that that situation has over us isn't actually the situation, but it's our negative response to that situation. And so what I've learned is that instead of exposing, instead of reacting to a situation, I go into those situations prepared. Like when I know this month could be a really high water bill, I get the water bill and I hold it in my hand. And sometimes I don't open it for a while because I need to get prepared for what I'm about to see inside of this water bill. 
And so I sit with it for a little while, and I focus on it, and I focus on the goodness of God, and I focus on the promises of God, and I focus about how I had water this month because God paid my bill last month, and I focus on the fact that I got food on my table, and I focus on the fact that I got heat in my house. I tell you something, it's not long of doing that before I open that water bill, and it honestly doesn't even matter what I see in there because I'm so confident in the fact that because God did it before, He's got the ability to do it again. This is the thing I've realized that I say this and I make my, well, I don't make my daughter say it because she can't say it yet. But I say this to her every night. I do the nightly routine. I tub her. I do like a little oil rub down, which you should be my kid because you get an oil massage every evening. And at the end of the oil massage, we say things. We make confessions and I say things over her and I tell her things. And one of the things that I say to her is, Lola, we are the McDonald's, and we always win. And I say to her a couple of times, I say, Lola, we're the McDonald's, and we always win. Because I've realized something. I've realized that winning is a mentality. I've realized that it's amazing how when we watch these movies, no matter how many times Rocky gets knocked down, because he has the mentality of a champion, because in his mind, he has already won the battle. It's amazing. It doesn't matter how many times he gets knocked down. In fact, it's when he gets knocked down. You notice there's those movies where the guy gets knocked down, and he's bleeding, and his eye is puffy, and he's like, cut me, Mick, right? Because he can't see out of his eye. That was a Rocky reference if you don't know it. And he's like busted up, and he's bruised, and he can barely walk, and he's limping, and he like sticks his chin out as if, what the opponent has done to him has had little to no effect on his spirit whatsoever. How many of you know when we begin to attack our situations? This is what soul prosperity looks like. It looks like I've taken command of my thoughts and my emotions, and I'm not allowing situations to tell me how I'm supposed to react to them. I've already chosen before I open that bill, I've already chosen before I walk into that workplace, before I preach a message, before I do anything, I've already gone into it knowing if God would do it for me before. I know, there's one thing that I know. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And it could be soaring with eagles, and it could also be through the valley of the shadow of death, right? But there's one thing that I know. King David said it. He said, I've been young. I've been old. He said, I've been around. I've seen some stuff. I've been in the palace and I've been in the dungeon. I've been in the caves. I've been on top and I've been on the bottom. I've been forgotten. I've been forsaken. I've been hunted and chased. I've been backstabbed, bad-mouthed. He said, but there's one thing I've never seen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen it. I've seen it all. But there's one thing I've never seen. I've never seen God turn his back on one of his children. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word in our life, God. Your word tells us it's a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And that's our determined purpose, God, is that we want to know you. 
We want to understand you. We want to understand your nature. We want to walk with you and talk with you. We want to commune with you. We want to be with you. God, because we want to be more confident in you than the situations that we find ourselves in. God, we know your word promises us you never leave us or forsake us. And because of that, we choose to rejoice. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray your life was impacted by the service and that you were able to feel the tangible love of Jesus fill whatever space you're listening from. Maybe you found this message and you've never had the opportunity to come into a personal relationship with Jesus, or you've known about him but have been far from him. We want to give you the opportunity to make his love a daily reality in your life. Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross so that you and I could be close to him. He wanted to wipe away every disappointment and bring you into a life of purpose and meaning, one that will impact this globe for good. So if you'd like to begin this journey with Jesus today, then repeat the simple prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm praying this prayer because I know that I've made mistakes and have been living without you. I apologize and I trust that you will forgive me. I accept your love and grace and ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. Help me believe in you and love you every day. Help me to show the world what you're like and how great your love is. I commit to live for you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen. All of our Light City family are joining with heaven and celebrating over the commitment you just made to have Jesus as the Lord of your life. We have resources available for you to help you on this journey, but most of all, we're praying for you. Send us a note at info at golightcity.com to let us know about the decision you've made today. We have resources we'd love to send you uh, with some easy steps on how to go from here so that you can discover God in a real and meaningful way. If you have a prayer request, our team would love to connect with you and partner with you to see God transform your life. God bless you, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.